Open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 4 this morning. Moving at breakneck speed, we now arrive to chapter 4. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all of the New Testament as Jesus comes to Samaria and encounters, divinely so, this woman that he will soon meet at the well. But before we get there, we have some preliminary teaching that the Word of God gives us. And so we want to look at that this morning in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. The Word of the Lord says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour Let's pray. Father, again, open your word before our minds and let it have its full effect upon us, knowing that it bears your very character, your perfection, your power, your truth, your light. Allow it to search our minds and hearts in the hand of your spirit that might accomplish a good and godly end in us that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, both for those who believe and need to be sanctified, and for those who are yet to believe who need to be justified. May your word do its work in all of us today, ultimately for the glory of your precious, holy, and magnificent name. And we ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past Friday, we celebrated here in America what is known as Veterans Day. November 11th, every year, we set that day aside and we honor and remember those who have given of their time, their bodies, their efforts, and their lives in some cases in the military service of this country. But often forgotten is what November the 11th was initially set aside for. Not only by Americans, but by nations around the world. November 11th was initially set aside and called Armistice Day. The time when hostilities ceased, effectively ending the First World War. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, that horrific war ended and peace ensued. What a destructive war World War I was. We talk a lot about World War II, perhaps because we are closer to it in time. Perhaps it's because there are still some veterans, at least today, around and still living with us that fought in that war. And but World War I seems to be largely forgotten. And yet it was a horrific war. 
a destructive war. So much new, so much technology, so much destruction the world had never known before entered into the world's consciousness in that conflict, chemical warfare. The introduction of automatic weaponry that could so quickly destroy life. Heavy vehicle machinery, airborne warfare, all of it transpired and took center stage in that first conflict that enveloped the whole whole world. All of that introduced at a time when tensions were already high, it simply heightened it and promoted what war really has always been about. That is destruction. War has always been about destruction. Because as much damage as quickly as possible in order to get your enemy to submit. Because war is about destructions, the very purpose of a military is tied to that. They are destructive forces. They are meant to be able to punish and to enact the will of a nation upon another. And within a military's purview are different mission sets. Not the least of which is to search and destroy. We think about the history of World War I, the expeditionary forces from England and France and then later the United States that were sent into territories to make beachheads and to establish forays into enemy territories for the purpose of ending the war as quickly as possible through overwhelming destruction. Search and destroy was the mission. Now I understand this morning that not all of the details that we have before us this morning are the same, but the kingdom of God, just like the world during that period, has always been at war. The kingdom of God has always been at war. Since Genesis chapter 3, the kingdom of God has been at war. We have been at war with sin resulting from the fall. And unlike other wars that have resulted from sin that seek to destroy us, our captain has come on a mission. Unlike other wars that seek to destroy even their enemies, our captain came on a different mission, and his mission is not to destroy, but it is to seek and save. To search for and to save. To search and redeem, as it were. Here in John chapter 4 this morning, we find Jesus doing exactly that. We have a first-hand account of an invasion. Of a mission that Jesus is enacting to search and redeem those who are lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says this, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save, to search for and redeem those who are lost. We are given by the Apostle John this morning. And aren't we thankful we have that? A military preparation, a a mindset of one who has come on a message to search and redeem when he finds. And so this morning, in keeping with 
that idea of what Jesus came to do to seek and to save, to search and to redeem. As, as we think about that, we have three briefings this morning in the text that help us to understand that mission of our Messiah. Three briefings in these six verses that we've already read this morning that define Christ by His attributes, that stand as the pinnacle of what John is saying. Jesus is sovereign. He's the unquestioned victor before the world, the war ever starts. He is saving, regardless of the background or regardless of the story into which He is coming, Jesus is coming to save. But He's not doing it as a God who does not care or a God who cannot understand. Jesus does all of this as the God-man in human flesh. So first of all, I want you to see this morning in verses 1 and 2, John briefs us regarding the resistance that Jesus faces in His mission. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's a problem. That instantly begins to ruffle feathers and to cause the hair on the back of their neck to stand up. Jesus is facing resistance from these men. And He knows it. He understands their heart from afar. He can read their thoughts. He knows their motives. He understands what is at stake. And the resistance to Jesus that springs from the human heart is is still evident we can throw stones at the pharisees but let's be honest the resistance to jesus is in all of us as well prior to his holy spirit regenerating us and bringing us to the father through the son we too have that resistance but here jesus faces immediate resistance from the Pharisees. You know, Jesus won't always deal with those who resist Him like He deals with the Pharisees. And this is part of our message. This is part of being honest about Jesus. The message that is heralded out in front of Jesus today is, well, you can take Him or leave Him. He's just a benevolent, kind gentleman who would never, you know force himself upon you that's not what we read in scripture at all is it there's coming a day when jesus will not come on a mission to search and redeem he will come to search and destroy but for the moment jesus is not coming to search and destroy even as he encounters this resistance from the pharisees He's come for a greater purpose, and this purpose Jesus Himself will initiate. Jesus is going to change the dynamic. Jesus is going to control the battle scene, as it were. He's going to maneuver and do what is necessary in order to accomplish the mission He came on. Jesus is not forced to do this by the Pharisees. Jesus does it because this is what Jesus has determined to do. 
we look at the Gospels and we need to understand this. Everything that Jesus does in the Gospels is not a reaction to man. It is sovereignly decreed. Everything that he did. Jesus is not moving about because of the Pharisees, even though they are resisting him, even though he knows what is in their hearts. They are not dictating to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords what he will do. He has come to search and to redeem. And it's a fool's errand to see it any other way. And yet Jesus puts this in here to heighten the tension so that we, we understand what his life was like. It, he is facing opposition. The Pharisees were a proud group of people just as we are today. We are proud people. And yet, no man has sway over Jesus. Jesus liked to remind those who provided the resistance to him of this. In John chapter 10, verse 17, you'll remember what he said. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. How does Jesus deal with this resistance? How does Jesus deal with men who think they have the power to control him? No, 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 you don't take it, I lay it down. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. So here Jesus faces resistance. The Pharisees certainly mean to stir up trouble. They are not there to learn from Jesus. They are there to destroy Jesus. They are there to silence Jesus. What man, however, meant for evil, God intends for good. Have you noticed that in the storyline of the Bible? That whatever God does, He does for good, even though men may intend it for evil. The same is true for Jesus. He is still in Judea. He is still where He was when we left Him last. He is baptizing he's making disciples more people are coming to him than ever before and the pharisees are intent on ending what jesus is doing but god means their resistance and their opposition ultimately for good as we'll see developed in the rest of this chapter the pharisees arrive on the scene jesus becomes aware that they are aware according to the the text jesus knows that they, were, they haven't said anything, they haven't done anything, but he knows what's in their mind. And not only aware, but subversively active when they show up on the scene. Now, as it relates to this situation, we need to remember what comes just before it. The goal is to remember the lesson of that portion. What, 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 what had we just read? What was the dominating theme of what came just before this? As John saying in verse 30 of chapter 3, is it not? He must increase, I must decrease. I want you to look back at verse 25 of chapter 3. In verse 25 of chapter 3, we read this. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification that there, there there is already a tension there there's already a tension in the background it could be that this man in verse 25 is a pharisee who would come to try to probe and 
to poke holes into what Jesus is doing. And he's creating a, he's creating a, uh, a situation in which there is division and diversion from what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And he's trying to pit John the Baptist against Jesus' ministry. I think it's very likely that this man in verse 25 was a Pharisee. A very similar background then to what happens in verse 1 of chapter 4. Thank you, Terry, by the way. I see a lot of this. I'm about to start doing this. Chapter 4, verse 1, seems to be playing off of that tension that has happened in this disagreement between the two groups. And the Pharisees appear ready to manipulate that and to utilize that. He is, after all, gaining more disciples than John has. And they're there to meddle. They're there to create resistance. They're there to do whatever they can to stop this man named Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus because Jesus, although John is not their favorite person in the world, this Jesus completely upends the status quo for them. His following is different. It's larger. He has more influence. He has more potential. His teaching is different. He is preaching a gospel that they have never heard before. His authority is different. In fact, so much so that Mark tells us, Mark 1.22, they were amazed, scandalized, shocked, because he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. This man is not like us. Therefore, we must get rid of him. His identity is different. Already in John 1, 29 and 35, Jesus has been ascribed messianic properties. He is Messiah. He had done things only God could do in John 2, 1 through 11. And instead of celebrating, they are bothered by what Jesus has done. They have a whole litany of reasons to care about what Jesus is doing. And the resistance is there. Jesus knows it's there. Their fallen minds, their objectives, their desires want to increasingly oppose what Christ is doing. Jesus is increasing, which will necessarily mean in their world they are decreasing. And for that, that is an intolerable situation if it is allowed to continue. As the gospel unfolds, this becomes the single provocation that leads to every pretext they could find to kill him. He is increasing, and we are decreasing. Isn't that the way it always is with the flesh, though? The fallen flesh. Whenever Christ increases, the flesh rises up in defiance to Christ, in resistance to Christ, because we, in our fleshly, sinful state, love self more than Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is the resistance Jesus is getting. Jesus leaves then Judea. He has to get out of the way. It's not time for him to come into direct conflict 
with this resistance. He is on a mission to search and redeem. It is not yet time for the final showdown. Whether they intended to kill Jesus on the spot or simply create discontentment and rivalries between John's disciples, we don't really know. But whatever it is, Jesus understands that there is something of pride in their heart that is going to make his mission difficult. It's the insurgent movement of Jesus against Jesus. This is pride. It's the destructive insurgency of every heart. It knows the terrain and the shape of our heart. It knows what our heart lusts for. Pride is a pervasive foe and it provides ample power to aid Satan's battle plan. It's true of the Pharisees. It's vicious and it will spare nothing when it's attacked. Have you you noticed that? When your pride is attacked, when fallen men's pride is attacked, there is nothing it won't do. You see it in politicians all the time. You attack me, you'll pay. I view you as a threat, you'll pay. You see it in marriages. You attack my pride, you insult me, I'm going to lash out and respond in anger. You see it in children. That's mine, and I will fight for it. And at certain stages, bite for it. It's the pride of the human heart. It does not tolerate being provoked. And these Pharisees are provoked. They don't like that Jesus is increasing and they are decreasing. We have an interesting interlude in between here and verse 3 when Jesus actually leaves Judea. And we read this, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Jesus is baptizing physically himself, no one. And and Jesus is not in it for the fame or, or the numbers as his enemies clearly are, as those providing the resistance because of their pride are. Jesus is not in it for that. And some have suggested that perhaps they thought in coming that they could catch Jesus baptizing and accuse him of creating a rival to John and even themselves. And so John the Apostle is quick to point out, hey, he wasn't even baptizing. You remember how Paul addresses the Corinthian church. So I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christus. Paul says, you know what, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you people. What's wrong with you people? To quote R.C. Sproul. What's wrong with you that you look to a man? And so John is quick to point out that they had probably hoped to catch Jesus baptizing so that they could attach to him some motive that was not there. But Jesus isn't even doing that. He's not trying to simply gain a following. What is his mission? To search for and redeem that which is lost. And so a sovereign God and Savior, Jesus does what any good commanding officer does. When he is attacked, 
for the sake of the mission, he changes his position. He moves to a better fighting stance or a better position in order to accomplish his mission. He is first here to search and redeem, and he won't be thrown off track by the resistance. So notice what he does, verse 3. He leaves Judea. He just leaves. He moves on to a different space. And for those who are not redeemed in that mission and persist in their rejection of Him in that place, including those Pharisees, He's coming back, but it won't be to redeem. It will be to judge. And so He changes the terrain. Now John gives us a briefing as to what that terrain is. He leaves Judea, and He went away again into Galilee and had, to come, and had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now these are not insignificant details. These are important details. John presents us with a stunning movement as Jesus, to avoid being thrown off of his mission in verses 3-5, through five, continue on in such a way that he will be able to search and redeem those who are his. Rather than deal outside of the mission the Father had given him, Jesus just simply moves on. But it's not as though the Pharisees caused him to move on. Jesus, as we know from what transpires later in this chapter, has a divine appointment that he himself has set up that He Himself has arranged. Jesus leaves Judea for the region of Galilee. But in order to get to Galilee, He passes through Samaria. Now notice what the text says. He had to pass through Samaria. And there's a difference of opinion as to why this is the case. If you were to look at a map and you were familiar with the territory uh, Judea is at the southern part of the nation of Israel in the geographical area where Jesus is, and Galilee is at the north. And we all know that the quickest distance between two points is what? A straight line. And so it is certainly quicker for Jesus to move through Judea. And yet some commentators and some historians have said, but a, but a, a conscientious Jew would never have gone through Samaria. In fact, they would have crossed over the Jordan River, gone around the east side of the river, up and over and into, rather than through Samaria. They would get to Galilee the long way. So there was another path that was well known to Jews in Jesus' day. But I would submit to you this morning that Jesus having to pass through Samaria was not of a geographic convenience but run rather of divine appointment. Jesus could have gone another way. Jesus could have, in fact, taken the monkey off of his back with the Pharisees by going another way and not dealing with the impure Samaritans. Politically for Jesus, that would have been a better thing to do. Though it would have meant more steps, it would have meant more days on the road, Jesus could have pleased the Pharisees, at least in some regard, by going around Samaria. But Jesus, because He has a mission, has to pass through 
Samaria. There's no other way around it. Why did the Jews disdain the Samaritans so much? Why did they hate them so vehemently? And by the way, the opposite was true as well. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. And we find that later on when Jesus and his disciples are passing back through Samaria and they're looking for lodging and they ask to stay and the Samaritans say no. And you remember the response of James and John. Lord, let's call down fire. How dare they refuse you lodging? We'll just, let us do it, Lord. Let us call down fire like Elijah. But why did they have such a disdain and a disliking and a hatred for the Samaritans? And to understand this hatred, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, deep into the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18 detail and chronicle for us what occurred in history that caused there to be such an antipathy between the Jews and the Samaritans. In AD, or I'm sorry, in BC uh, 722 B.C., I always flip that. 722 B.C., Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, invades Israel, the northern kingdom. And he takes out all of the influential Jewish people, not everyone, but all of those who had potential and all of those who he felt could contribute. He hauled off into captivity. And knowing as he did, the quickest way to destroy someone is to create instability not only did he take out the vast majority of the jewish people he then sent in foreigners idolaters and pagans to occupy the places they had once occupied and to intermarry with the jews that were left and so now you have essentially an area right in the heart of israel right in the heart of the promised land of God's people, a nation that are half-breeds, and not only half-breeds, but idolaters. Their blood has been mixed with the impurity of pagans and of idol worshipers, and all of that now is part of their national identity as Samaritans. The Jews who were so concerned with purity and piety rejected them even though they are their cousins they've been mixed with all the false religions and the other nations around israel that they so proudly detested they developed the samaritans do their own religion Their religion consisted of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah. They were happy to abide by that and mix it and mingle it with other religious things. In fact, at one point here where Jesus is going to encounter this woman, they raise a temple on Mount Gerizim. Remember that name. They raise a temple on Mount Gerizim to conduct their hybrid religion. First five books of the Old Testament, they regarded the rest as uninspired and illegitimate, and so they didn't use those books. But in 200 B.C., John Hyrcanus 
came in and leveled the temple that was on Mount Gerizim. And so we read in the text that Jesus has passed through an area that, that has with it marked out disdain, marked out hatred because of ethnic impurities, because of religious impurities. And Jesus is not only passing through Samaria, He comes to the city named Sychar. What's unique about Sychar? Well, Sychar is a city that literally is on the top of a ridge connected to Mount Gerizim. It's the foothills. It's the bottom part. It's the shoulder, if you will, of Mount Gerizim. That is what Jacob gave to his son Joseph in Genesis chapter 48. In fact, the Hebrew word literally means shoulder. It's mentioned as being a ridge, but it's a shoulder off of Mount Gerizim. And there's an importance to that. There's an importance to what Jesus is doing in that specific place. And remember, there were other options for Jesus. He could have gone a different route, but he ends up here. At the well, at the place, at the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph on this mountain. The place where Jesus is going to set up reconnaissance, to use the military metaphor. Jesus is going to go to this place in this specific city, on this specific mountain, at this specific well, and he is going to sit there and he is going to wait for someone to show up. Because he is on a mission to search and redeem. Samaritan or not, Jesus has a mission and He enacts that mission in a very strategic place. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Scriptures is that nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Where Jesus goes matters. The, the, the backdrop to where Jesus speaks matters. Let me give you another example. Matthew chapter 16 Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. Go home today and Google ancient Caesarea Philippi and you'll find a mountain with carved little alcoves all throughout the side of that mountain face where they would put all of their statues, all of their deities that were worshipped. And Jesus takes His disciples to Caesarea Philippi to that known area where polytheism was so prevalent, where there were many gods present. And Jesus stands in front of all of those idols and He says, who do you say that I am? Where do I fit in? Who am I? Compared to these gods. And that is where Peter, you remember, makes his statement, you are the Christ. The Son of the living God. So Jesus, in, in the same vein, does the same thing as well. In fact, would you go all the way back with me to the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. If you really want to do yourself a favor, and I mean that sincerely, Go, go back and read chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapters 11 this afternoon with this fresh in your mind. 
we have the retelling of Exodus 31, 32, 33, 34 here in Deuteronomy. We have the second time here where God gives the law. Israel has violated the law. You remember, God says He's going to destroy Israel, rightly so. They have violated Him. He tells Moses, I'm going to start over again. You will be the head of this nation. Moses begs God, don't do it. The world is watching. You have made a promise to your people. What would the world say if you destroy the people to whom you have promised? And that is all God was trying to get Moses to do was to confess the faithfulness of God before him. Moses then in Exodus 33, remember, says, show me your glory, God does. And here we have in Deuteronomy 11 a recounting of those events. And if you'll look at verse 29, we read why it is that Jesus has chosen to initiate his mission of search and redeem where he has done so. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Across the valley, across the plain, Mount Ebal, you are to read the law, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim, you are to proclaim the blessings of God upon His people. You are to proclaim the provisions of God for His people. And on the other side, you are to get on that mountain and you are to proclaim the judgment and the cursing if the law is broken. And so here is this valley, this area that God has had rich history, deep history with. Jacob gives it to Joseph. It becomes the place where the blessings of God are pronounced and proclaimed upon the people of God that they might live and that they might have hope. And on the other side is the law that condemns them and the curses for breaking the law. And Jesus goes, and where does He go? To the Mount of Blessing. To the mountain most prominent in their minds from Deuteronomy chapter 11. Jesus is setting the stage for an incredible encounter. Jesus positions Himself here on this historic high ground, this ridge, this shoulder in the city of Sychar, where the Jewish people had formerly heard the blessings of God for keeping the law. And where they could also hear in that valley ringing the curses for those who violate. This isn't a safe place for Jesus to be. He'll be hated for being here. But Jesus doesn't go where it's safe. Jesus goes where He is needed. You see, a Savior for redeeming isn't needed in the safe confines where all is well. He's needed in the middle of a battle. He is needed where there is cursing for the violation of the law. 
He is needed where sin rages, where sin carries out its destructive insurgency in the human heart. That's where Jesus is needed. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in spite of the resistance, this is exactly where Jesus plants Himself. The God of all grace has lodged Himself squarely where grace is most needed. Do you recognize that you are a sinner? Broken and helpless? Do you understand that? Good. Good. Because there's a Savior who is whole. And He's not sitting where perfect people dwell. He's sitting where sinners dwell. And His wholeness is offered to all who believe in Him. Are you lost in the spiritual desert? Are you hopeless in finding your way to God? Do you understand that you're lost? Good. Because Jesus is in Sychar. Jesus is in your neighborhood. Jesus has come to find you on the mountain of blessing. That you might live through Him. And here He is, available to help those most in need. He doesn't go to the religious in Jerusalem to have this encounter. He sits on a mountain of blessing in the middle of an area of disdain to seek and to save the broken. Those who know they're broken. It isn't just words read from a mountain like Moses. Jesus is the Word on the mountain. He is the rock of our salvation. And just as Jesus revealed Himself to Nicodemus, so He's going to reveal Himself to a woman at a well. She's not educated. She's not religiously pure. She's not loved and followed by the masses like Nicodemus. She's hated by the masses, and especially the women, because when they see her coming, they hide their husbands. And Jesus goes and He plants Himself waiting for her to show up. She was looking to what would happen on that mountain in their pagan worship, in their polytheistic combined worship. Jesus is sitting there as the source of worship, as the object of worship, as the object through whom God's blessing alone could come. I wonder how many times she had been to church on that mountain. I don't know. But it has to be more than we could count. She knows the religion of her area. She knows the religion of her people. And yet she is broken and empty and dry. Until Jesus shows up. Until Jesus 
the very Word of God comes to the mountain where the Word of God had been spoken in the past, where the rock of salvation has come. And not only can she hear about it, now she can see it. There's an old hymn that says this, Speak to the rock who was smitten for our full salvation. Sing to the well with a spirit of praise and elation. Drink the supply from God enthroned, the Most High, our inexhaustible portion. This is Jesus in Sychar. Weary pilgrim, wounded soldier, what are you looking to for your salvation? What are you looking for for your purification, for your hope? Don't go to the place the world tells you to go. Don't go to the place where your flesh tells you to go. Don't even go to the place where your religion tells you to go. Go to the rock. Go to the one who sits and waits for you. Not as one who destroys. Not as one who can't understand or does not care. But one who both cares about you and can do something for you. Go to Him. This woman who Jesus will soon meet so longed for wholeness. So longed for meaningful worship. So ingrained in her traditions and her life and her system that she stood in His presence for a a great deal of time before she ever realized who He is. One who would both lead her in worship and one who would become the object of her worship. I want you to go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Now I know we read that earlier this morning. And I, and I will tell you, I did not plan this. I, I do worship service planning usually three months in advance. And so this scripture reading was chosen for today several months ago. But it couldn't be any more perfect than where we are this morning. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, about the man whom this woman encountered who had a sincere question about being right with God and what true worship was. And here's what we read earlier. But we do see Him. Who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Jews and Samaritans. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author, the author of their salvation through suffering. Now hold your finger there and go back to John chapter 4. What does verse 6 Tell us, 
So Jesus being what? Wearied from his journey. He is feeling everything we would have felt. He's experiencing the hardship of life in a fallen world. He had to be perfected through sufferings for both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. This is God's plan. This is His battle plan. This is God's mission. For which reason? He, meaning Jesus, is not ashamed to call them what? Say it, brothers. Brothers. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So here sits Jesus. On a mountain, afflicted by suffering, afflicted by what life in the fallen world really looks like. You get tired, you get hurt, you get thirsty, you get hungry, you weep. Jesus knows. And here in the, on this mountain, in the middle of this cursed land, Jesus sits among an unclean people and the book of Hebrews tells us this. He is not ashamed to call us His brothers. Not at all. In fact, not only is He not ashamed to call us His brothers, He leads us into the throne room of God and leads us in worship. Who can ascend before the Lord? Only those who have a pure heart. Only those who have been forgiven. Only those covered in perfect righteousness. And Jesus is not ashamed of you. Rather, He is covering you. Even though we are no better and no different really than this woman who He will meet shortly. All of these Samaritan people so disdained but not by Jesus John gives us in verse 6 then a briefing regarding the command any good mission militarily speaking needs to know who they're fighting they need to know where they're fighting and they need to know what the command structure looks like Who's in charge? Who do we call when we have an issue? Who do we delegate to? All of those things. The chain of command is critically important. And about noon, the sixth hour of the day, we find Jesus by this cherished well. This well that Genesis 48-22 says has been handed down through the generations, through Jacob to Joseph that has kept people alive. For centuries now. And why is Jesus there? He's there because He is not a stranger to our infirmities. 
He's there because he knows our infirmities. He himself felt our infirmities and he uses them to further his mission of redemption. It is not a hardship to him. It is not an, uh, a roadblock for him. No, it is a tool for ministry. And he's going to use it. A thirsty man goes where thirsty people go. Where there's water. This well is fed by an underground stream that even today this well is still active. It's still good. Because it's fed. It's, it's referred to in other places in Scripture as not being a well, but a, a stream. And both are true. It's an underground stream that feeds this well. So that it never runs dry. Another perfect scenario for Jesus to use as an illustration. Jesus comes as the great captain of our faith, Hebrews chapter 12. To seek where there is need, to redeem those who are trapped and crushed beneath sin's brokenness. And here's the great captain, the great leader, the champion of our faith. Most great military conquerors are famous for staying behind. They make the plans. They're brilliant strategists. They know what they're doing and they delegate the actual fighting, the actual mission to subordinates. And yet, here's Jesus. He's not telling His disciples, hey guys, listen, I don't really need to get my hands dirty. I've already got problems with the Pharisees. I don't really need to go. Tell you what, you twelve, why don't you all go? Why don't you go deal with the people there? Why don't you go up to Galilee? I'm going to stay here, lay low for a while, let things calm down a bit, and you guys go do the dirty work. No, Jesus is there. In fact, Jesus is so there, the disciples are with Him, but they're kind of in the background. We're not hearing a lot about them. Jesus is the one taking initiative. Jesus is the one leading in the fight. Nothing is left to chance. Jesus, the sovereign, is sovereignly initiating yet another rescue mission. What's your view of Jesus? Is he too high up the chain of command to care? You need to see his humanity. Is he too weak or impotent to press the mission and finish the mission? In your understanding, then you need to see his sovereignty. Is Jesus too holy to get involved with you or with this woman who's upcoming? Then you don't know his salvation. He is the great champion of our souls. He's been sent into hostile territory. And by the way, it's a no-win mission for him. The people from whom he came don't like him, and the people to whom he's going don't like him. He has no home. Everywhere he goes, there's opposition. But he is willing to take the opposition in order to carry out his mission of redemption. 
John says, look at his sovereignty. Look at his purposes. His purposes cannot fail because he cannot fail. Look at his humanity. He's not so far removed that he doesn't understand. No, he sits thirsty and tired at a well. Waiting for a woman who's thirsty and tired and coming to a well. Jesus cares. Jesus can. And only Jesus cares and can as he does in order to be able to effect a change. And so here he is sitting on this mountain, this mountain of blessing. And what he will essentially say to this woman is this. You know this mountain as a mountain of blessing, but I am here to tell you the greater blessing has come. You came to this well for physical water, but I'm here to tell you there's living water. I'm here to tell you that with all of your brokenness, if you'll drink this water, you'll never thirst again. You'll never be broken again. I will heal you from the greatest disease, the disease of sin that has so ravaged your life. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Here we find our great hope the shepherd of the sheep sits at the well. Lying in wait for his gracious mission of redemption. An ambush of glorious salvation. Do you see him? Do you see him? Can you hear him? The Son of Man has come. To seek and to save. Let's bow our heads. Jesus came to seek and to save. And that mission is still ongoing today. It has not changed. He's not physically at a well anymore, but He's right here in front of you in His Word. And He calls you to believe. He calls you to see Him. He calls you to hear Him. And He calls you to believe Him. He calls you to take part in what this mission offers. Because if you don't, He will come back. And the mission will be completely different. But His desire for you is that you be saved. That you do believe. That you do experience the mountain of blessing that is Christ. Would you trust Him today? Would you confess your sins to Him? And call upon Him to save you? He's here to seek and to save you. Believe on Him. Father, thank You for Your Word.
Lord Jesus, thank you for your glorious mission of redemption and salvation. Thank you that you spare nothing and that you leave nothing out. Sovereign God, fully God, truly God, and truly man, all for our salvation. Father, cause anyone who has not believed this morning to hear this with ears that actually hear and grant them repentance and faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we who have be eternally grateful and give you worship that is due and right for your many blessings to us in Jesus. May we never cease to sing His great praise. Work in our hearts now, Holy Spirit, and continue to preach this sermon, this text, this truth in a far more effective way than a man ever could. Don't allow us to escape from what Christ came to do. Keep it ever before us and in front of us. Cause it to be the source of lying awake at night. Until those who need to believe do. And until those who have been saved by this mission fall asleep, lost in the wonder the love and the praise of a Savior who came. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.